Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Healing Circle Podcast. What up, doe? Welcome back to the Healing Circle Podcast. I'm Kobe. I'm Kyle. And you guys, it's Black Maternal Health Week. I'm so, so excited about it. Wah. Why are you Isn't that like the, the universal sound for Black Maternal Health Week? No. Like the crying baby? <laughs> World, no, Kyle. Oh, okay. Um, I'm really passionate about Black Maternal Health Week because of my own birthing story. A couple of you guys know bits and pieces of it, um, but I wanted to get on here and kind of have a just a concentrated place where I had the entirety of the story. So, um, yeah, I'm going to share our birthing story with you guys. So, like many people, um, my first trimester was pretty terrible. Um, trash. Yeah, I had really bad morning sickness. Um, one of the weird symptoms of pregnancy is you just salivate a lot. And on top of that, the saliva in your mouth tastes like old pennies um, and nickels. And it's disgusting. And nothing that you, it changes the flavor of food and nothing that you eat can really get it away. I had trouble sleeping. I had terrible gas. Sorry, babe. <sighs> It, I don't even <laughs> like talking about it. It was a dark time. It was. There are times where Kyle literally got up and left. Um, I just slept in the living room. Like, yeah, I don't deserve but this. He always came back to bed. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, gas life. gas was on another a whole nother level. On a trillion. On a thou wow, y'all. A also, morning sickness. Not just in the morning. Go it's figure. It's not. Yeah. It's, it's just all day sickness. I don't know why they call it morning sickness. Maybe for some women it is only in the morning. But for yeah. you. Yeah. It That's a good point. Yeah, all day. It it was twenty four hours. But what was amazing is, on the thirteenth week, which is when you begin your second trimester, literally the day I turned thirteen weeks, I felt fantastic. Energy was up. I felt good. My pregnancy was pretty stressful because I was pregnant my last year of grad school. Um, we were married, living in Wilmington. And I was driving four hours. I was going to work on Friday mornings, then driving four hours to class that started at 6 p. No. What time did class start? It six, was six to morning. nine. No, no, it was six to nine. Class oh, Friday started night. Yeah. Friday and night. Then class started eight to four or something on yes, Saturday. On Saturdays. And then after eight to four, and this is in Charlotte, I would drive four hours back to Wilmington so that we could go to church in the morning, prepare for work on Mondays. And I was doing this all the way through my second and third trimester. Plus working um a full time job. Rather, working a partly full time job. Um it was supposed to be part time. What they call a part time job. I know, but it sometimes it was full like a lot of hours and sometimes it wasn't. Anyways, let's just say part time. While also working a part time job and then working two internships. And then writing papers that were 30 pages long, all that stuff. So it's pretty stressful. But overall, physically, I felt great. I had a great energy. Um, yeah, I mean, everything was great. Um, I Second kn- trimester was great. Hold it together, Kyle. Don't, Just say it. Don't try it. <laughs> that, Hold it together, sir. All the dudes listening, second trimester is your trimester. You prepare yourself, prepare your heart and your mind for the second trimester. I cannot with you. That's that's when the Lord does a redemptive work. Anyways, second trimester was awesome, but I noticed around seven months, early in the seven-month mark, I noticed that my stomach was getting smaller. So for those of you who don't know, when you um, go to your OB for um, any type of 
like uh, pregnancy related things, they're on rotation. So you are on a rotation of um, OBs. So I might have uh, Dr. Brown. These are just made up names. Dr. Brown is my primary person, but for the next five weeks, I may not even see Dr. Brown. I see Dr. Blue and Dr. Green and Dr. Mm -hmm. Yellow, and they're all communicating my information to each other. And they typically want you to rotate through everyone who could possibly end up delivering you because you have your own doctor, Yeah. but um, if you don't give birth on the exact due date, they can't guarantee that your doctor will be on call. So it could be any one of those five or six doctors at the Right, and they want to be sure that you're familiar with them and they're familiar with you, all the things. So um, my doctor, there were two women that I made sure I always saw them. I didn't feel I don't feel comfortable with male OBs. Um, it's just a personal preference. Um, but there are two female doctors. Well, uh, it's not just a personal preference. It's a personal preference armed with some pretty significant issues that have arisen with male OBs. It's not like you just randomly decided, oh, I don't really like male OBs. Like, you've had situations and well, encounters Well, beginning that... with that, I didn't like male OBs. And then after that, which I'll share a little bit later, was when I was like, I will literally roll over and die before I let a male OB touch my body. Um, So, where was I? Oh, so these two doctors, I'm seeing them pretty regularly. Um, They were great for the most part in the beginning. And this is something that... I'm sharing this story for black women who haven't been pregnant or who have been pregnant, everything went well and will get pregnant again. And the reality is every time we get, we're pregnant, we're at risk, right? Um, It's a sad reality, you know, we're bringing beautiful life into this world, but also we're at risk. Um, So my OBs were really nice. They're really sweet until I started asking questions and Um, kind of challenging the status quo. And by challenging, I'm not saying like, oh, I came in there with a list like, well, Google told me or WebMD told me. Honestly, what was happening was I was asking them questions because some of the things they were saying weren't lining up, right? So around seven months, I began to lose a ton of weight. So much weight to the point that people started asking me if I already had the baby. And I was wearing the same clothes I was wearing before I was pregnant I was able to button my pants, wearing the same shirts, did not have to wear any maternity clothes because I was literally shrinking by the day. I was getting so small um, and I was growing worried because I felt like something was wrong. I couldn't even get out the questions (laughs) for for those two individuals. I couldn't even get out the questions before they would say, it's fine. This is normal. I know that you're worried. I know that you're, and it it was clear that they wanted to keep um, the system rolling in the way that was most convenient for them. And every time I asked these questions or persisted on these points of concern, um, I was challenging the system that was most convenient for them. Um, So I was always saying, hey, something doesn't feel right. I know I'm supposed to be gaining um, a lot more weight, you know, all this stuff. And they just, they blew me off. And to be honest, I didn't really know, like, what do you do from there? If you tell your doctors, like, something's wrong and they say, no, it's not, like. Yeah. And, you know, in fairness to them and to all the medical professionals out there, there is, yes, there's, um, 
there's bias, right? There's implicit bias at play for sure. Um, and, and that's why um, participation in, in the African-American community um, in all these conversations and in these professions is super important. But there's also the reality that, like, what happens with a lot of these professionals is they see more people in a week dealing with something that for you or for us is a once-in-a-lifetime event, and they become kind of numb to the reality of how scary it is, how new it is, how novel it is. And they're used to, I'm sure sometimes there have been people that have come in, had concerns, and it really was nothing, such to the point that you get numb to it. And you stop seeing people as people with real problems and real questions and real concerns. And you just start seeing them as like, exactly as you said, it's just kind of part of the system. Yeah. I know the implicit bias I is can't part of it. I can't with that, though. Well, I'm not, I'm because not saying it's, it's, it's like, the nature of the job. You know, if you're yeah. if you're going to work with people's lives, you like that is what it means to be a doctor. You have to be aware of even the most minute of details because they can be life altering. Yeah. They could be life ending. Right. And I don't so, say it as a defense of them. I mean, for people who you may really trust and have a lot of faith in your medical professional, whoever's seeing you. Yeah. And you should. But you should recognize that this is not an issue only at play with the doctor who weakens as a clan member, you know, or the doctor who has never really treated someone in our community or has these deep, deep implicit biases. These are the sorts of things um, the implicit biases are magnified by this already latent kind of disregard of black emotions, yeah. black pain, yeah. black um cultural realities that we have real feelings we're not just caricatures on a tv screen studies it it can happen there are literally it can happen but it's it happens disproportionately to black women and we can't just say well it just happens because that's a part of what happens in the profession it's routine we can't say it's just routine because if it was routine black babies wouldn't be dying at three times the rate of white women white babies you know black women wouldn't have three times the rate of complication as and not just I'm not talking about just health complications. I'm talking about medically induced complications. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I just read a study that said um, they um, what was it? I can't I'll try to remember the source. But um, essentially it was saying hospitals that serve primarily black clients when in a study where they did 15 um, routine C-sections, 12 of them had complications, which was not the case with hospitals that were serving primarily affluent white people, you know, white Mm -hmm. communities. And so, yes, it's something that happens. I'm a therapist. I'm familiar with compassion fatigue. I'm familiar with Mm -hmm. desensitization in some ways, in some capacities. It makes you better at doing your job. But I will not defend um, any OB who has compassion fatigue because they're seeing a black person and they're just not used to it. Or, like, it just makes me think about... Um, I was in grad school, and this is before I was pregnant, but there was another girl in my class who was pregnant before me. Um, and we were just talking, and I was like, oh, yeah, tell me your birthing story. I want to hear all about it. And she was like, yeah, you know, I did it completely unmedicated. I had no clue that I had that type of strength. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. That sounds like an amazing feeling to have. And she said, yeah, well, when the time comes for you, you definitely won't need any medication. And I said, why? And she said, well, I was taught that black women have a higher tolerance for pain. 
And this is something, this is why we, this is why police brutalize little black boys and girls Mm -hmm. and pat little white kids on the back. This is why police see little black boys and girls as older than they are. This is why police don't even see black women as women. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, this is why the world treats people like Serena Williams, like they're not delicate and they don't deserve tenderness. Right. And I'm not ever going to lean on the well, it happens and they get tired. I'll never lean on that because when I was saying it happens just for clarity, I'm trying to convey the reality that for me, I know there are people listening to this who you may be similar to me. You work in a setting that is in the majority context. You may be the only one in that setting And to be successful, like maybe even in corporate America or whatever, you begin to understand how to maneuver. You have to, in some ways, um, turn down your paranoia and in other ways, turn it up. And for me, I had just gotten to a point where unless a medical professional like showed the bias, like in our interactions, in our conversations, I did not view them as necessarily being susceptible to that bias. And so I'm saying like, this is something that can occur even with the medical professional that you genuinely believe has your back, sees you, and is not one of those that will discount. Because we liked her OB. Yeah. Like, and, it wasn't like I, we got the vibes from them. We really enjoyed her, but I think that's why it's so important for me to, to qualify that. She was kind and we liked her until I began to challenge her, mm-hmm. until I began to ask her to draw on her reserve of clinical expertise and medical expertise when I actually made her work in those meetings, in those sessions, in the yeah. I keep calling them sessions, in those appointments. Um, that was when she was like, hold up, you're crossing the line, right? Because the reality is, and I tell my clients this all the time, My clients who come in, especially people of color who've never been to therapy and sometimes can be intimidated by the medical profession in any capacity or the healthcare um, field, I tell them, I am working for you. If you ever feel like I do something that makes you feel uncomfortable, you come tell me. And if you don't feel comfortable telling me, look in my documents, this is exactly where you can report me. And I say that because so many black people don't feel empowered. Black women don't feel empowered going into spaces and challenging medical professionals and saying, hey, like, this is what I said to the doctor at Carolina, Mm -hmm. right? Like, oh, we'll get there. We're going to try to make this episode not an hour long. But, (laughs) But, you know, I think the point is, like, in this conversation, I'm the person that's always, well, not always, but I lean to the idea of like, hey, you're being paranoid. Like, it's not that deep. And that I would say helpful. this, it wasn't. Yeah. And so that's what I'm saying. This is the conversation. If you're, say, the spouse to the black woman that is going through this pregnancy, this is the one area where I would encourage all of my brothers who are trying to support a woman in this, in this space to be paranoid to be the person that seems a little unhinged, that's taking everything a little too seriously, that's looking for the place where their um, spouse is maybe being disregarded, being disrespected, not being given the care that um, they deserve. Because these implicit biases, they, they're they like small grains of sand that stack up, stack up, and stack up. 
And by the end of it, you could have not, like I did, not realized what was happening and find yourself at the end in a tragedy. So yeah. like going at the end, I fixed it. And we'll talk about that. But going to this next one, like I'm like, listen, it's a different world. I'll fight. It's a different world. We'll scrap. Yeah. We'll like scrap. I am the paranoid person now. And I'm not I don't want to yeah. say paranoid. That makes that downplays the reality. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I think that like no shade to you, babe. You're amazing. But I think that also speaks to the way that society views women when we speak up for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. Even you as my husband, someone who loves me unendingly, I know you would die for me in a heartbeat. But when it came to between my word about my body and a professional's word about my body, there are several times where you leaned on the professional. Yeah. And a lot of it was because you felt that my emotions made me irrational, yet my emotions were speaking to a rational reality that was present that only I had access to, right? Yeah. And, like, that's something that made this experience pretty difficult. But anyways, um, once I kept telling them, hey, I, like, something is wrong, they just kept blowing me off, um, kept... I requested, I was like, hey, like, I whatever the extra will pay, I need an ultrasound. I feel like something is wrong. I feel like something is off. So um, right before, right at my first eight-week appointment, I think. What was it? Yeah, because Levi was born a month early. Right at my um, eight-week appointment, the first week, the last, like, four-ish weeks, you're supposed to go um, – in every week, but I, um, we had a high risk pregnancy because Kyle has dwarfed blood cells and I'm a sickle cell carrier. So at eight weeks, I was starting my weekly appointments. I go in for my first appointment, y'all. I go in, uh, my hair is dirty. My next stop afterwards is to go to Walmart and to get some Shea Moisture to wash my hair and twist it, um, and hopefully get it braided in preparation for the delivery in, you know, not too many weeks. I go in. And she's like, wow, your blood pressure is really high. And she was like, oh, well, you know, you did rush in a little bit. So maybe it's just because you ran and, you know, you just are a little out of breath. So we'll wait till the end of the session. I'll take your blood pressure again. I said, okay. So she took my blood pressure again. And she said, your blood pressure is really high. It's nothing to worry about. But let's take you to the hospital. We're going to draw some blood. We'll wait there for the results. Altogether, it should take about two to three hours to draw the blood, send it to the lab, and get the results because it's all in one place. And then you can go home and you'll be fine. I didn't come home for another 21 days? 20. Longer than that. It, it was, that it was From that moment month. that I went into the hospital to draw blood, I never got to come home. And when I came home, I had a child. Yeah. <laughs> right? So we went in and it was, you have to spend the night. Okay, we'll spend the night. And then you can go home. So we spent the night the next night, um, and they were like, well, the baby's heartbeat is irregular. Keep in mind, I'm trying to keep it together because I'm pissed because I've been telling them something's off, something's wrong. So they're like, oh, the baby's heartbeat is irregular, so we're going to keep you in for longer observation. I said, okay. They're like, okay, your blood pressure's high, you have preeclampsia. So eclampsia, or to be eclamptic, is to seize. So it means my blood pressure was so high that I was, at any moment, I could seize um, and if I was at home, they wouldn't be able to get to me or help me. It's very dangerous. So they want to keep me for continued monitoring. So they're like, okay, well, you know, while we're here, let's look at the baby. I said, okay. Come back the next day. This is like the third day at New Hanover. And they're like, okay, so yeah, the baby has a enlarged right atrium. 
And also the baby has a malformation on his liver. And we're like, what does that mean? What, like, what, what are we going to do about that? And um, they're like, well, we don't have a neonatal cardiologist here. And he'll probably need heart surgery as soon as he's born. So we need to send you to either ECU or Carolina. And we're like, okay, when will that be? And they're like, in the next hour. You will find out in the next hour. And we were like, okay, do like within the next hour or hour? And they're like, within the next hour. So Kyle, from the beginning of this, he ran out of a meeting, stayed with me in the hospital the entire time. He had to run home, grab as many clothes as possible, nurseries not together, like, like we are scattered. And then he, uh, the ambulance comes. Uh, we find out we're going to Carolina. We find out where we're going when the ambulance gets there. <laughs> like, so yeah. there's no way to prepare. We don't know if we're going to Greenville or to um, Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill. So can't, ambulance gets there. Kyle, luckily, is he's Tokyo drifting. And actually, you know what? We were supposed to go to Duke first. And on the way there, they changed it to Carolina. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, mid-drive. Mid so Kyle is following the entire way. We get there, Carolina. Um, people are like, wow, this is like the best place to give birth. Like you are just so blessed. This is the best place. And, um, I wish I got to experience that. Yeah. It was, so don't know what it's called. Medical professionals will know. I have weird veins and when they're touched, they kind of like rolling veins. I think that's what it's called. They like squeeze shut. So I have blacked out with a needle in my body before I have passed out. I've thrown up all of that. And so... Um, I learned early from my pediatrician, let your doctors know that you have small veins and that you have rolling veins. <laughs> we had so many people be like, oh, we see this all the time. No worries. Mm -hmm. You know, we hear this all the time. It took, how many, four nurses? It was three nurses, the um, attending for anesthesia, like the attending anesthesiologist, and then the... Uh, no, I'm just talking about for my hand. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. What was that? Like, they had to bring in the full, like, anesthesiologist, an anesthesiologist, like, the person they, whose job it is to do that for surgeries, like, to get people hooked up. They literally could not get a simple IV in me because they did not listen. And the last person, I don't know who it was because I was just so angry, the last person who did it, the thing that they said is, wow... Um, you have rolling veins. You should let medical professionals know that before they try to stick you with anything. Yeah, it was the it was the anesthesiologist. And then yeah. at the end, the thing that she told them to do in the beginning, the fourth person did. Yeah. And it worked. And then they looked at me like I was an idiot, like, hey, you should know your body a little bit better. Like, you should, you know. So that happens. We get there. Keep in mind, when we're at New Hanover, I forgot to add this in there. Um, New Hanover tells us that, I say, how big is Levi? Because I was worried about the size, remember? And they say, oh, he's probably about six pounds, maybe a little bit less. Babies come in different sizes. He'll, he's fine. We're not worried about his weight at all. So we're at Carolina for five-ish days, and they're like, how far along are you? One of the nurses says that. Um, and I'm like, you know, past eight months and she's like you are the smallest person I've seen at eight months and so they're like we already got all the tests from Carolina I mean from New Hanover and we're not supposed to redo these tests but we're just going to do them for ourselves keep in mind I'm peeing every 30 minutes in a jar having to me measure what I drink and what I pee mm -hmm. I have an IV in me at 24 hours at all times I'm can't getting my be, 
can't eat. I have my blood pressure taken every 30 minutes, even through the night. So I'm not sleeping at all. Um, so one morning we get woken up by this rude nurse. <laughs> she was so rude. She was like, wake up, wake up. And I just looked at her and I said, I know you're from Ghana. I just know I could hear it in her voice. It was a flash. Bro, I was ready to It was a up. flashback to my mom. She said, wake up, wake up. And I said, oh my God. And she said, I have to take your blood pressure and take some blood. So she does it. And the way she came in there, like a like a tornado, we struggled to fall back asleep. And this is around 3 a.m. Then by the time like 4.30 hits, one of the nurses comes in and it's like, hey, they're about to take you down to get an ultrasound. Just be ready. And we're like, be ready for what? And she's like, be ready. And all of this, let me tell you something. Nurses are underappreciated, period. Point blank, period. I've never had a doctor be as kind, caring, attentive to me as a nurse has been. I've never, never, never had a doctor. And like, I'm not yeah. saying this, this is not me bashing doctors, but just saying my experience every except for that one nurse but every nurse i've had has literally we had nurses sit there and hold my hand and cry with me mm-hmm. like they we had nurses looking out like hey like, you're not really supposed to know, know this but they're coming up in about 20 minutes and if you don't eat shower and get all this stuff done, done before then yep. you will not get it done before the baby comes you didn't hear it from me <laughs> um you know yeah. um i and, think it was all the nurses except for the one, and then and then that other one at the end. I think the only doctor that treated you well was the last one, who was actually still a student, mm. like still, yeah. which I think is part of. The, he clearly Speaks he so still much. saw he. It was new enough that he was still he still had empathy. He saw a person. Yeah, he saw new a enough real that person. he saw a person. Yeah, so we. Um, we're woken up. She takes us down to ultrasound and the ultrasound lady, her face, it, it drains. You remember that? It mm-hmm. just, and we asked her and she said, unfortunately, I can't interpret these for you. Um, but she just looked at us and said, but be expecting to hear from the doctor very soon. As we're walking back up to our room, um, the nurse is like, okay, here's the deal. The last hospital you were at told us your baby was around six pounds and that there were no worries about the weight. Your baby is under four pounds. It was three pounds and... He was born at three pounds, four ounces, but by the time they saw it, he was like three pounds, eight ounces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were like, he is under four pounds. He's very small, and if we don't induce labor today, he's not going to make it. He's just not going to make it. So I'm panicking, which shoots my blood pressure up again, which exacerbates preeclampsia. Um, I literally am rushing to eat, don't get to eat. So I, by the time I'm in labor, I'm in labor for 18 hours, but by the time I'm in labor, I hadn't eaten in almost 36 hours. Yeah. It was it was the most treacherous thing I've experienced in my entire life. But before that, they um, give me some Pitocin to you know get the contractions going. And then they are like, hey, we just want you to know that we are going to, you know, we think that you should get an epidural. You've been through enough pain. You've been, And I, I, I was adamant. I said, a no, I don't want an epidural. Like, if I'm doing this vaginally, I don't want an epidural. No, we really need it. We really think it's best for you. They were like, 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 say, they were like telemarketers. Like, 
you really need, they had three different doctors come in and try to convince me. And finally, I was just so emotionally worn down that I said, fine, I finally get the epidural. It doesn't take. And we pierced your spine as they're, I don't know if that's the, the medical word for it, but as they are um, putting the needle on my back, um, they numb it first with these little tiny needles. And so I say, um, it feels numb-ish, but I still have sensation there. And they said, oh no, you're just feeling pressure because they begin to put the needle in. Then the needle's halfway in and I'm like, oh, I feel it, I feel it, I feel it, ow, ow, ow. And I'm like panicking, curled over because I can't, (laughs) I'm like thinking I'm going to lose ability in my, all of my limbs. And so they stop and they're like, like annoyed with me. Like you're not feeling pain. It's just your fear. You're just feeling pressure. Attending walks in. He, he's like, how much, um, did you like shoot up? What, how much anesthesia, a local, whatever. Yeah. He says, how much numbing local did you give her? Yeah. And they say a number. I have no clue what it is. All you hear him say is that's not nearly enough. That's not nearly enough. What were you thinking? So th- all I feel is like pins in my back, like pew, 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 pew. And I'm just having to sit there, literally listen to these doctors make a mistake and one of them was in front of me he was responsible for like holding one of the bags and I looked him in the eye and I said you guys have studied bodies but none of you have studied mine like you think you know my body but you will never know my body more than I know my own and he just looked down because I'm pissed like I've already been through enough I've already gone through enough and here I am suffering because you guys don't want to listen to me. And this is not the first time in that situation yeah. that a doctor did not want to listen to me when I said something was happening. So, um, I end up going to, I was in labor for 18 hours. Then Levi goes, starts going down the vaginal canal and, um, he start his heart stops. All I remember was, um, all these nurses running, rushing in mm-hmm. and putting like a mask over my face yeah. The and way they have it set up is out in the lobby, they've got these like screens so everyone can see like just the vitals yeah. of each person. They don't see anything else. And all the, when someone's in distress, they switch all the screens so that someone knows like, hey, this person is really like they need help. Yeah. And so we're in the middle of just like contractions, 18 yeah. hours in, 19 hours in. And all of a sudden, like literally seven or eight nurses run in. And they just surround her. And everyone's saying, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. But it's like, clearly, no. If there's eight people here, I'm not going to be okay. And the most terrifying part to me was I did not feel any different. I didn't feel. So I didn't know why they were rushing in and freaking out. Um, But, yeah. Apparently, he was. Apparently, at the same time that he was going down the vaginal canal, my blood pressure was going, like, spiking. And so. And then his heart was stopping. It was all this stuff. That was just a lot. Um, I'm going to try and figure out how to condense this. So long story short, end up going to um, getting a, um, a C-section, emergency C-section. And um, that went pretty well until um, they may have overshot, <laughs> may have definitely overshot the morphine. And it's supposed to stop like right um what they said, like right under your my breast, like right under my chest, um, they said it shouldn't affect my lungs or my breathing. But I struggled to breathe the entirety of the time, um, and so I'm like trying not to have a panic attack. Kyle's holding my hand, and they pull Levi out, 
and all I see is this blue mass. And then that resident Mm -hmm. starts freaking out. And then the surgeon, who was like literally the real life Miranda Bailey, was like, get out of my OR. Like, get out. And so the resident runs out, panicked and embarrassed. I'm bus wide open <laughs> in the flesh. Yeah, they wouldn't let us see. Like, and they wouldn't it let was us such see harvest, Like, normally, um, you know, your spouse can actually see, like, the yeah. other end of what's going on. Um, but in this situation, I think because they were so worried that it would it would not go well, they, they would not let me. And then even when they pulled him out, um, they rushed him away almost immediately. Yeah. We didn't get to see him or hold him or touch him or anything. Yeah, I didn't get to I didn't get to see him. I didn't get to hold him. All I saw was like this dark blue mass being pulled out. There was no cry. There was no whine. There was nothing. No. Right. And like, I and thought he was stillborn. To be honest. Same. Same. Yeah. And this was this was this isn't even half of the story. To be quite honest. Yeah. Um. But I will say that. This is about, this is a story about the real, real life threatening risks that are present when doctors don't take black lives seriously. And also the real, real risks when we don't, when we don't have advocates. Yeah. I'm, I decided literally when I was still in the hospital, I will never have a pregnancy without a doula or a midwife. Never. I will never because I love Kyle so much, but like he, he's going through this too. Like we made this child together that he is not just an objective supportive party. He is a human being who's emotionally attached to me in every situation. You know, um, I ended up having a wet tap, which is when they puncture the dura, which is the sac that holds your spinal fluid. So imagine your brain's floating because it has all this fluid around it. Um, But my dura was punctured. So after I had Levi, I would sit up. And when I sat up, my brain was beginning to, like, (laughs) sit in my skull, which felt like someone was literally putting my head in, like, a trash compressor. So even when I could, and Levi was in the NICU because there were so many things wrong, they didn't think he was going to make it. And I couldn't even go up to see him because I couldn't sit up because they punctured my dura. Um, And then they said, the only way that we can fix your dura is if we give you another Epidural. epidural and cover that hole with blood because blood clots um but the risk is that they'll puncture another hole and that's exactly what happened they punctured another hole so it's more time that i can't breastfeed my child more time i can't bond you know by the time i got to really hold levi was five days after i had him um really bond with him was five days after i had him and i cried and cried because he had so many wires in his body i couldn't even hold him comfortably and then that night I almost had a seizure mm-hmm. and this doctor, this nurse, um, excuse me, tried to make me take medicine I didn't want to take. And I asked her, can you just, I'll take it if you can tell me the how it'll affect um, my, my milk supply regarding the baby because I want to know what's going into the baby. And she said, well, either you take this and you, uh, either you take this or you possibly die. And she wouldn't tell me. And I said, she said, okay, well, the, the doctor will come tell you. Doctor never came. She never came and checked up on us her whole 12-hour shift. Um, and then they discharged me the next morning and said, hey, you got to go. With <laughs> with recovering from this punctured dura, recovering from a major surgery, they were like, you got to go. Um, 
we didn't qualify for the Ronald McDonald house because we made too much money and our insurance was so good. So we found a Motel 6 15 minutes away from the hospital and I drove, Kyle, rather Kyle drove me every three hours to go try to feed Levi. Um, who wouldn't latch. Who and, wouldn't latch. Uh, and It was a nightmare. And it was an entire <laughs> nightmare. Um and I don't say this to scare people who are going to have kids, but the world tells us that if we have the right mindset, mm-hmm. if you just set your heart on the Lord, if you do the right thing, if you act the right way, you will get what you want. And that is not true. Yeah. That is not the gospel. I prepared for a natural, unmedicated birth. I was taking care of my body. I was eating well. I was exercising. And then time came and everything, when I say everything that could have gone left, went left. I didn't even tell you guys about the blood vessels that they burst in my hand. Everything that could have gone left went left. Yeah. But And this is not to excuse what happened. This is not to say I'm, I'm glad it did because I'm definitely not. And there's still some ways I'm working through it. But I can say now that God used that suffering to pull a Kobe out of me that I never even knew existed. I never knew I had the capacity to worship while literally being stuck with needles. I never knew I had the capacity to wake up at 3 a.m. after not sleeping to pray for me and my child. I never knew I had the capacity to lean on God. Like when it came to the point, like, like there was a point where they came in and they were just like (laughs) looking at me and Kyle awkwardly. And they're like, you remember this? When they're just talking, so they're talking about like, hey, have you prepared for the idea that like, your wife or your child or your or both may not make it? Yeah, yeah, that was that was. I mean, you know, to put this whole thing in context, right? Like, I'm in a meeting. She goes for a routine checkup. From the time that happens to about almost uh, nine days later, we are in in a hospital room. and that's just to get the birth done. And we probably slept a total of 18 hours across those nine or 10 days. Yeah. Because when she says they were in there every hour to an hour and a half doing things, it was every hour to an hour and a half doing things 24 hours a day for like nine or 10 days. Yeah. And the whole time, she's scared. She's probably scared more about losing Levi than than dying herself. I'm scared about losing them both, trying to figure out, okay, like, how do I make the decision? Because at some point it could come down to me. We can only save one. And the truth is I would always save Kobe, but she would probably never forgive me. Right? So it's like, I mean, really thinking right. about... Stuff that stuff, we don't want to think yeah. about at 24 years old. We were tw- Bro. we were 24 when we had Levi. Yeah. I'm, 24. I'm 76 now. Yeah. So I don't and know how that happened, but it aged us. <laughs> it did. It did age us. And I think it gave us a wisdom um, about life. And more than that, it gave me, um, it knocked the pride out of me. I will, because before that, I could have told, I could have convinced myself that I could have learned everything myself yeah that I could have I can do this myself why do I need to do it I can just research myself right but Mm -hmm. like there's something you don't get to choose your birth experience your birth experience chooses you Mm -hmm. and it makes you into the woman you need to be to be a mother yeah and you don't get to choose your child right because after all of this we're in a hospital for nine or ten days three hours from home 
Our son is in, we think everyone's going to die at some point. Kabe has an allergic reaction to the morphine. She didn't even talk about that. But she had to get an epidural just for the allergic reaction beyond the epidural blood patch and then, you know, piercing her spine and all that stuff. And then we get um, our, our kid. We don't get to see our child very often because he's high risk and not sure if he's even going to continue on. We get back home to Wilmington. He's in the NICU. Um, for another for almost, 21 days. Yeah, for almost a month. Then we get him back, and we find out he has GERD, which is gastrointestinal reflux disease, and he also has what's called a preemie scream, meaning <laughs> that, um, and we found out uh, pretty horribly that he had, like, a sleep disorder. Yeah. So you've got a preemie kid that is throwing up because he's got GERD, and while he's sleeping, he screams screaming. in his sleep. Like screaming and scratching his eyes out. Yeah. So we had 10 days of no sleep, whole bunch of trauma, only to get our son and it be literally the situation, the parenting situation from hell, where yeah. we did not sleep for almost 9, 10, 11 months. Not because we weren't good parents, but because our child literally screamed in his sleep. Not yeah. like made little whining noises, but screaming like he was Go on up. YouTube and look up preemie scream. It's the or worst. Or preemie grunt. Yeah. And, and all of this, for me, it burst my bu- my bubble of privilege. Yeah. I believed... Kobe and I, we, we like to tell this story because we want people to understand that no one is exempt. Nobody. And I believed we were exempt. Yeah, same. We were... We had good income. Yeah. We had literally one of, the, one of the top two or three insurance... Um, plans in the country, a hundred percent coverage. Our medical bill was eight hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, we, I mean, we and we didn't pay. We a didn't cent. pay a cent. So we had all the things stacked in our favor. We had all the poli- You know, we like my. <laughs> I dad, know the DA. His dad is pretty much the mayor of. Wilmington, yeah, they. Carolina. You know, they ask him to not run for mayor often, um, and we'll see what happens in the next few years. But like. We were. We have people all of color, the things you would say. Yeah. You need to be insulated from these sorts yeah. of things. Superior support, superior health, superior social standing. You know, high SES. Mm-hmm. All of these things that they say. Well, if Black women experience this, it's because they come from low-income families. It's mm-hmm. because their health is impaired. It's because they don't have support systems. We had all of that. We had all of that. Yep. And none of it. None of it saved us from the ultimate suffering that came from medical professionals discounting my voice when it came to my body. Yeah. And that to me was terrifying. And so Black Maternal Health Week has such a poignant um, message and has such a special place in my heart because I think that so many black women sometimes think, well, it's not going to happen to me, especially black Christian women. It's not going to happen to me because I've prayed over my child. It's not mm-hmm. going to happen to me. But nowhere in scripture does does the word say that any of us are exempt from suffering. We're not exempt from suffering. If you don't experience it this way, you're going to experience it another way. And this way it's particularly different because it takes a long time to recover, right? Like yeah. there was no rest you know not to mention i was in grad school the entire time i was writing my final papers in the nicu yep you know and so we want to share the story because we want to advocate um for those who experience things like this um we wanted to have a space i know i kind of over talked kyle but we wanted to have a space where 
men, one in 10 men experience postpartum depression, right? Where men get to experience this because that was traumatic for Kyle to go into. He literally sat beside me helpless as his wife and his child almost lost their lives. Yeah. Day in and day out, not being able, able to do nothing, constantly being told to leave the room and having to fight for a space to be there to advocate for me. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, we, we got to wrap this up. But I will say some people listening, maybe you're pregnant, maybe you're going to be pregnant. Maybe your significant other never listens to any of our episodes. Just play <laughs> this last 30 seconds. I am the person that's always okay. That person went to school for 12 years, dedicated resources, time, and energy that I you never would to learn about this. If they say jump, you jump. Yeah. They know more. I hate when people come into my job where I'm an expert and try to tell me how to do my job. Let, yeah. let them do their job. As a guy, this is the one area I, I do not advocate for that. I would say do everything short of getting yourself thrown into jail to make sure that your spouse, the woman in your life, feels supported. If you look foolish at the end, if you are wrong every step of the way, so be it. But you do not want to be on the side of having to, to think, man, what if I had supported her five weeks ago when she was saying something was wrong? Hmm. What if I had, even though I thought she was being dramatic, what if I had said, hey, you know what? Yeah, it's going to cost another $600 that we really don't go, we really don't have. Run the test again. My wife isn't comfortable. Yeah. Run them again. Run them again. You know, like, so you don't want to be in the yeah. situation I was in. And obviously in this next one, you know, um, I got Chandler. Yeah. I know you listening. You my lawyer, civil rights attorney. I got you on standby because <laughs> I will go to jail this next pregnancy before I let anyone discount what my wife is feeling. Yeah. And this is not to say that oh man, if they just listened to me, no complications would have happened. No, I'm not saying that at all. But if they would have listened to me, we could have caught them earlier, right? We could have been proactive rather than reactive. Yeah. Um, also, he lost four pounds because he was starving, or three pounds because yeah, he was starving Yeah, I didn't even talk about how I had placental abruption. I had placental abruption, which is why Levi was so tiny, which is when your placenta literally like breaks off from your body. And so that's what transfers the nutrients and food to the baby. And so that was broken. So he was pretty much just getting water yeah <laughs> right he was so, starving uh, and it's really dangerous a lot of babies don't make it you know we just saw um we were talking to you know um, a medical professional about that situation and they were like yeah you know your son is lucky to be alive yeah your they, son is lucky to be alive they rank survivability on a scale of one to ten he was born at a two he was born at a two they said that he was going to be developmentally delayed until he was at least least two years old he had to have physical therapy um every week for mm-hmm. i mean the first what year and a half mm-mm, it was the year? first 11 months because that's when he started walking yeah 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 you're right so he had a different therapy he had yeah. two different therapies i can't remember which which yeah. one was which um but yeah and and i promise the last thing i'll say i know we went a little over on this episode but it's just i'm so passionate about this um hard stories deserve to be heard I share this not because it's going to make a good podcast episode, not because it was going to get a lot of downloads, but because I believe that my story deserves to be heard. Um, And sometimes when people have hard stories, um, stories that could reflect the reality that we're walking into, we often shut them down. I can't tell you how many times people I've began to tell this story and people have been like, ah, that's a really negative story. Can we talk about something else? Or, mm, I don't know if I want to hear the rest of this one. 
right? And it's like, wow, people don't even want to hear about the pain of experience. Could you imagine going through it, (laughs) you know? And there's this isolation that comes with people wanting to constantly divert away from the reality that I've experienced. And this is me um, using all of my ego strength to say, no, my, my, my story deserves to be heard. And one day when my child is getting married and having their own kid, um, and their kid in the name of Jesus is born healthily, that they'll get to see what an absolute miracle it is that they're alive today. An absolute miracle it is that they can do the things that they do because so many times we want to celebrate the testimony, but we want to forget the test. Right. We want to celebrate that God's done something good and powerful in our lives, but we don't want to remember the trial that we went through um, that we needed him to save us from. So thank you guys for taking time to listen to my story. Um, it was really empowering to be able to share, honestly, that birth was hard. Motherhood was hard. Um, there are a couple of things I want to share for those of you who are looking to be mothers or parents, um, looking to get pregnant, who are pregnant, or maybe have just had a child, um, one, I would say your mental health can be proactive. It doesn't have to be reactive. So if you are in a place where you feel fine, that's a perfect time to go to therapy and start preparing for motherhood. I'm so grateful that I had a therapist that walked me through before, before pregnancy, during pregnancy, and after. She was there every single step of the way, and I needed that. And you can have that too. There are people who specialize in caring for mothers and mothers of color. Um, I'll provide some of those resources in the show notes too. Um, Write everything down. Sometimes it's easy to forget things when we're nervous. Mm. So write down that I didn't feel good on the eighth or I felt especially nauseous or I felt this pain on the left side of my stomach. Write it all down. Um, And then also lean on support. Whether your friends are going through pregnancy or not, it means the world to have social support, right? That's the number one indicator of resilience across all races and cultures in the entire world is community. So build that community now, whether you already have a kid or you're hoping to have one soon. Um, Learn and get an advocate. My next pregnancy will absolutely have a doula. So um, get someone who can help you and support you as you navigate this new season of your life. And if you're a friend of someone who is pregnant, about to be pregnant, uh, towards the end of their pregnancy, whatever it is, um, there is a misconception. Uh, people, like, don't want to bother new parents. Let me tell you right now. You ain't going to bother us. Let the new parent in your life tell you, leave me alone. Let them be the one to say, hey... Stop asking if you can come over and clean. Stop, you know, stop sending meals. Stop, you know, asking if I need a, a night off. Stop, you know, stop doing that stuff. Let them be the ones to tell to you. set that boundary. Because yeah. what often happens is, like, maybe the first week or two, people are kind of there for you. And then somewhere along the way, they feel like they're overstepping. So they all disappear at the same time. At the same time. <laughs> when they didn't need your help week one because there were 20 people trying to help them. Yeah. Week five... When stuff really starts getting real and you're sleep boy. deprived, Crickets. it's like you're waiting for somebody. You ask, hoping someone would call in and help. So be yeah. the person that's still being the annoying friend. Yeah, you will love the parents in your life so well if you let them be the ones to say, "Okay, we don't need any help anymore." Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Um, 
stay updated on our Instagram if you want to learn more about um, some amazing events and opportunities when it comes to Black Maternal Health Week. Um, I'm going to try and put some resources in the show notes for um, some organizations here in Charlotte that I know um, really help Black mothers. I know Raising Resilience is one of them. I was really excited to discover them and hopefully we'll at some point utilize their services um, also, don't forget to join our Patreon. We'll probably have a little thingy after this that says that, but our Patreon is super live and super lit. We have um, weekly, not weekly. How do you say three times a week? I guess you just say three times a week. Tri-weekly. Tri-weekly. We have tri-weekly faith-based mental health sessions where we do guided meditation, spiritual disciplines. We have... Um, mental health relationship and faith FAQs. Um, I have discounts for merch discounts for merch. It's on the way y'all. Um, and then also we go through, um, coping mechanisms. So it, it really is this new way that I'm providing my patrons, um, a lot of similar information that I give to my clients right? But in a less personal way, because it's not therapy. So if you want mental health resources um, that can help you get through this quarantine, help you get through the week, help you get through relationship and just life and help you draw near to the Lord, um, join our Patreon. Yeah, links in bio. All right, you guys, we'll talk to you soon. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Wait, until the circle. No, I wanted to do this time. Okay, fine, you can do it. Until the circle comes back around. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps people figure out who we are and what we're doing and gets the podcast out to a wider audience. Also, we have just launched a Patreon. In that, you'll have access to guided meditations, spiritual discipline sessions, even some live Q&As about mental health. And most importantly, you actually get first dibs to merch. Um, If you've ever looked at our website, Uh, you'll see a Protect Your Peace hoodie. That'll be dropping soon. So visit the show notes and join the family.